And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. There are few people in American life whose triumphs and torments have been as public as those of Patrick Kennedy, uh, the scion of uh, the great political family who served in Congress for 16 years and whose battles for mental health parity and battles uh, against depression and addiction uh, have uh, been well documented and documented by himself in a, in a, a great new book called A Common Struggle. By writing the book and through all his activities to promote uh, mental health parity, to fight the scourge of addiction, uh, Patrick Kennedy has shown uncommon courage, as you can hear for yourself in this conversation. My old friend, Patrick Kennedy, it's great to be with you. Likewise. You know, um, we've known each other now for a couple of decades. I worked with you uh, when you first ran for office. But but we never really had a, a, a talk about um, about your earlier life. And the, the, the obvious question is, um, apart from some of the issues in your own family that you've written about that we'll talk about, talk about the, the whole Kennedy thing, the whole gestalt, and the, the pressures that that, uh, obviously there were opportunities, but there were a lot of pressures associated with that. And what was it like growing up with that? Um, burden, responsibility, whatever you want to call it. Right. Well, first, uh, you were so instrumental to my first getting elected to Congress, and I'll never forget several meaningful stories in my history where you were not only a great political consultant, but a great kind of personal advisor well, I appreciate helping it. me through that. Um, I haven't ever had the chance to take a deep breath and think about things. I've been charging along my whole life and, uh, you know, elected to the State House at 21, to the Congress 27, leadership at 31. And, uh, you know, it wasn't until I had a few years of continuous sobriety after I left Congress and I was writing my book um, that I began to connect some dots and get some perspective. Um, the single greatest characteristic of people suffering from a substance use disorder or mental illness is the lack of insight. So the ability for me to actually have had that conversation with you two decades ago would have been nil because I wouldn't have ever been able to really take a perspective and think about what it was like because I was in the middle of it. So... Uh, the advantage of having this chance to write a book was that it gave me a, an opportunity to get some perspective and also to have some closure because I, I was driven by lots of things. And, uh, you know, the, the whole uh, growing up in my family, you know, obviously is all I knew, so it was normal. But, you know, if you get a little separation from it, you're able to begin to identify, well, what is normal, what isn't normal? And I, it was all normal to me. Even the abnormal was normal. So I guess uh, what I mean to say is, you know, I mean, I grew up and totally kind of dismissed the 
enormous impact at all this tragedy that my father had experienced and my both my parents had experienced, my whole family had experienced, was just kind of a constant backdrop to everything that was going on in our lives, but one that wasn't spoken about. So, uh, you know, here in Chicago, you've got murders and these kids growing up with toxic stress because they are surrounded by violence and tension and uh, mental illness and addiction. And, you know, it's kind of a chaotic environment that leads to them having a chaotic life. And you would think on the one hand, because I came from a very privileged family, that that may have somehow, I guess, insulated me from experiencing that backdrop of the tr stress that it accompanied the assassinations of my uncles and um, and so on. But it was it was omnipresent. You know, until I wrote my book, I, I didn't really think about the bulletproof vest in our family closet. I didn't think about you know, the folks that were constantly rushing over had guns just because of the worry that my father's life was always in jeopardy. I didn't really stop to consider how many times my mother, who had suffered, you know, really debilitating alcoholism and depression, how many times she just kind of w would come through the house uh, while we were entertaining guests who were the, you know, luminaries of the day, and no one would say anything. You know, those are, those are memories that were normal for me. And when I began to, re, you know, piece through my, you know, background and how it was that I ended up having that same kind of debilitating addiction and alcoholism and mood disorder, you know, I needed to kind of trace this without feeling as if I was whining. Because, you know, the other part of the Kennedy gestalt is that you don't complain. Right. And so this notion that you would have biologically based predisposition to real illnesses, because addiction alcoholism is a real illness, but it, in my other part of my family, it was seen as a moral failing. It was like you couldn't hack it, you couldn't you know, stick it out, you well, know, so one, one of my, one of my, just, just to interrupt for a second, one of my really strong memories of working with you when you were running in your first congressional race, it was 1994, very bad year for Democrats. And you remember your dad was running for re-election against a fellow named Mitt Romney. And uh, there was a period during that race when people thought he might actually be in jeopardy in that race, and you, you, and we had a tough race uh, for that uh, for that seat in Rhode Island. And uh, I remember you saying to me, you were really concerned that your dad was doing poorly, and that he would look at your race. And you said, you know, he's going to come down here, and he's going to be upset because he's going to think, you know, we're screwing this thing up. And um, and there was, I could feel the tension that you felt. And it made me think about the, the sort of expectations that you put on yourself and that, and that perhaps you felt from others uh, and how excruciating that must have been. And, and it further made me wonder why the hell you decided to go into politics. I mean, it was the, the line of work that was the most antagonistic to every bit of my 
you know, fiber, which was to be introverted and to, you know, I think, uh, you know, want to avoid anxiety and stress. And yet I jumped into a space which was full of anxiety and stress. But as you said, I was also trying to manifest this sense of expectation that I needed to become somebody, you know, that I myself was not enough on my own, that I needed to kind of have the dressings of a great title and status in order to feel okay. I mean, it was just kind of this internal imprint that I had on, that I carried with me. Um, And do you think that was a, a a function of being a candidate? I don't think it was a function of being a candidate. I, I call my book A Common Struggle because I think there's lots of father-son issues that are, are similar, and it doesn't have to do exactly with going into politics or running for a national office, but it has to do with trying to feel a part of and connected to. It also has to do with growing up in an alcoholic household where you try to make everything all right by being all right and, you know, trying to manifest on the outside what you can't make sense of on the inside. And um, uh, that anxiety, it strikes me, knowing you through all those years and intermittently interacting with you, uh, was always with you when you in all those years when you were in public life. Yeah. And, you, uh, and you had to uh, deal with them sort of in the... In the in the headlights, in the the, the spotlight yeah. of, uh, of of public life, uh, how hard was that? Um, well, I look back on it and I think, how in the world did I do it? And I did it because I self-medicated tremendously in order to survive it, and a lot, and that exacerbated this kind of ups and downs. But the thing that I hated the most was that anxiety. So I didn't mind the kind of euphoria with the crashes and the depression as long as I didn't live in that anxiety space because that just was too unnerving. I look back and I and I feel like, oh, I wish I could have changed this and that. I felt so awkward and ill-equipped to deal with the opportunities that I had. I mean, I think to myself what extraordinary opportunities I had to really make something of a lot of the work that I was doing but was unable to make... Um, take full advantage of because I was so kind of wrapped up in myself. But I realized everything is for a purpose. And having the chance now to be an advocate for mental health in a way that I wish I'd been able to do when I was in Congress, but that I was kind of leveraging all my experience and torturous journey through Congress and and fighting for the passage of the Mental Health Parity and Addiction Equity Act, that I'm actually able to carry that fight today that I wasn't able to do, you know, while I was in Congress as effectively as I wanted to. And that Mm -hmm. the story that I have now is born from experience and I wouldn't have the credibility and the ability to connect with audiences. And and the story wouldn't have been as rich in terms of getting people to pay attention to this wonky kind of legislative battle for brain equality. Right. Had I not been able to describe the myriad of kind of DSM diagnoses that I was also suffering from at the same time, I'm trying to cover the whole DSM for the purposes of insurance coverage. So, I mean, you can't make this up, David. I mean, if I ever had to feel was it worth it, it's becoming worth it now. You see what I'm saying? Like at the time, I couldn't have made sense because, as I said, I was just 
plowing along. Today, it makes sense um, because it's, it's having some value that I could never have anticipated. And certainly, when I decided to retire and do something else with my life and actually de- develop some stability in my, um, in my life and some sobriety, uh, it, it now all fits, you know, but it didn't f- make sense before. And I suppose if I had never gotten recovery, it would have been kind of tragic because I never would have really realized my potential. I wouldn't have found my calling. I wouldn't have connected these dots. But it's all possible now, and, and it's possible because I have some stability. I have some sobriety. and uh, Family. <laughs> family has got a lot to do with it, for sure. Yeah. So uh, one thing that struck me was that um, I know how much you loved your dad, and he was a revered person. A lot of people loved your dad. Um, I know a lot of people miss him in Washington now because he was kind of a, he was a guy who promoted uh, a level of civility that is, is missing. But, Patrick, it struck me that um, somehow, and maybe it's unrelated, but after he was gone, and maybe it's because you left public life after he was gone, uh, that you found a stability that you didn't have before. And I was wondering, was it, was it easier without having to live up to, to, to his expectation? Well, he, he was kind of a giant oak tree. <laughs> With a lot of people grabbing on, too, right? I mean, he was like kind of the, not just your father, but father to the entire family. Right. And it, it was, um, I mean, he was clearly a huge defining part of who I was, who I saw myself as. Um, how I valued myself was all juxtaposed to who he was and how he felt about me. Okay, so it wasn't about who I was and how I felt about myself and how I related to the world, but how I related to the world through him. So, um, yes, his passing was a um, transformation in my life. And the correlation between his passing and my deciding to leave Congress those were turning points in my life and in a, in a way that ended up being very positive for me. Mm-hmm. And promoted a, a kind of self-reliance, I suppose. You had to find yourself uh, and define yourself in, in your own terms after that. I, w- I feel so grateful, though, having had a chance to serve with him. I mean, we overlapped uh, for a better part of the 16 years I was in office, and I had lunch with him regularly and uh, I interacted with him in a way I never would had I been living in some other place and been involved in some other line of work just because of the preoccupation when you're in public office with everything having to do with public life and since our public lives often intersected by the nature of what we were doing it gave us a little bit of a connection that we never would have otherwise had in other words what I'm saying to you is I have a lot of closure I don't have any gnawing, oh, I wish this had happened, or I had closure here or that, there with my father. I, I'm really very comfortable. I tell my children about my dad. It's all good. Um, and I but think your family, that, your family was uh, uh, more than a little chagrined about your book because they felt that you had um, revealed things about your parents and your family to, uh, you know, 
and I'm just judging from what I've read. It could right. all be. No, it's true. But uh, to to uh, kind of um, satisfy your own need to to kind of reveal uh, things about yourself and to learn things and discover things about yourself in in print. Um, but you talked about your dad's own struggles. Yeah. Uh, and and I think that might have been surprising to some just because he was probably the most productive United States senator of the last half century right. and maybe the most impactful. Right. And yet he was struggling with, uh, with alcoholism. That's right. And uh, uh, presumably depression yeah. uh, as well. Yeah. No, I... I say that, you know, po- pre-9-11, we didn't know what post-traumatic stress was. Uh, everybody's got a strong sense of it now post-Iran, uh, uh, the Iraq-Afghan war. I would say that um, given what he experienced in his life, no one would say anything other than he had a huge dose of toxic stress in his life at having witnessed the murders of his two brothers and countless other tragedies. So his not having any coping mechanism for that in the form of a a mental health system that wouldn't have been seemed as pejorative because it would just been health care. It wouldn't have been mental health care. It's like, oh, my God, you suffered a debilitating tragedy then compounded by another tragedy compounded by, you know, you need X, Y, and Z intervention, right? That's going to be the normal course, David, in another 10, 15, who long, knows how long we're going to get around to it. But my point is, is the stuff that we feel, <gasps> that's private, is part of the problem with us being able to reach that day where mental health is ubiquitous in healthcare, and we don't make personal judgments on people for suffering from a, quote, mental illness. But he, he came from a generation, we remember Tom Eagleton. That's right. Uh, in 72, when he was chosen by George McGovern as the vice presidential candidate, and was then ousted from the ticket because he had been treated for mental uh, illness and had had electroshock therapy. Um, so... He, he, I'm, I'm, I'm sure he. F- oh, he felt that, and I write about in the book how furious he was at me on the parody, fighting for the parody stuff, because I would talk and disclose about my own struggles, and he would tell me we don't talk about those things. I mean, he was a perfect prototype for his generational view on this, and that's why I write about it because he does represent. Part of the common struggle, and that is the generational struggle as to how we view these illnesses, whether they're moral failings, are they medical issues? And, um, you know, but, but as an aside, I, I mean, I, what I wrote down is, is not, uh, I think, exposing him in any way that, uh, I mean, it is exposing that, Family well, exposes e- them as a human being. Yeah, but exactly. But it's that family ethos of you have to be quiet about this. And mm-hmm. it's that family ethos that kept us all ill. I mean, this has affected my brother, sister, and I. And it may, David, affect our children if I'm not on it. And, and, and this is generational. And so there is a gnawing and pathology to the silence yeah. of not acknowledging what is so devastatingly hurtful. And 
So yes, I ruffled some feathers by talking about how we tried to do an intervention on our father. I mean, this is Ted Kennedy. Well, you don't say that. That's the stuff for the haters to talk about. But that's assuming that these issues are somehow moral interventions as opposed to medical interventions. Mm -hmm. You know, that's giving them the, the worldview and making it what we're using as a template for judging this. I'm using this is a medical issue, yet he was killing himself, and uh, <laughs> he was everything we had. We had to do something about it. I'm proud that we did our, and just as I'm proud that he... Though he didn't accept your... He, didn't ex- he, he made some dramatic changes. His second marriage to Vicky was very, very helpful mm-hmm. in him uh, changing his, uh, his life course. I think, um, and who knows how each aspect of your life affects the other, and maybe we had a positive impact or not, I, th- I think we definitely, we touched him with it. He wasn't happy with the message. But no one is. I mean, if you are in the middle of it and you're getting approached by others, you want to say, back off. That's the natural reaction for anybody. So I understood that. I wrote about all that. I wrote down how his response to us, and it was some, a great deal of legitimacy, his you know, in terms of his criticism of us and the way we approached it. Of course, we were fumbling. We had no idea as to how to do this right. You know, it was watered-down A&E version of an mm-hmm. intervention. So, uh. You know, you spoke uh, a couple of seconds ago about um, denial and uh, the stigma that's attached to um, mental illness. And I, uh, you know, I've written my own book, and I... In it, I talked about my father's suicide when I was 19. And uh, the thing about it that was uh, more shocking is that he was a mental health professional. He was a psychologist. And everybody turned to him to help uh, them through difficult times. But he didn't feel that he could uh, that he could display that kind of vulnerability right. and, and seek uh, help himself. And uh, it took me 30 years to publicly talk about it or write about it because I thought I, I didn't want to sully his memory and then I realized the the reason that he didn't get the help he needed was because of that right because uh, somehow it was seen as a kind of stain on his character that he was struggling with uh, depression right um, so tell me where you think we are today in that regard obviously people like you stepping forward the campaign you run through the Kennedy Forum uh, these, this is a, uh, this is obviously a step forward, but how, how far do we have to go to conquer some of these stigma? Well, my feeling, David, and I've likened our efforts to the civil rights struggles because, you know, passing the Civil Rights Act, Voting Rights Act, Fair Housing, Fair Employment, they've done a lot to end the pattern and practice of discrimination. That doesn't mean they've changed all attitudes. Racism is still alive and well, so is bigotry, but you can't act on those things. And so I approach stigma from this vantage point. I don't care what someone thinks of someone with mental illness or addiction anymore. I just care, are they following the law? Because the way we ultimately get changes made is by enforcing the law and enforcing a new normal. And if that new normal says that uh, mental health has to be ubiquitous, that you get a checkup from the neck up, 
in every physician's office, whether it's the OBGYN or pediatrician or geriatrician, then it's going to start to feel not so scary to get screened for a mental illness, to get early intervention, to not wait till it's a crisis. And that's going to change attitudes. If we attack this as a PR issue, I think we could be waiting for another couple of decades. Mm -hmm. So I really think the approach I'm taking is um, make insurance companies do what frankly is in their financial best interest anyway to do, and that's integrate mental health into the rest of physical health. But if you don't do it, then we're going to come after you. We've got a legal working group together. We're we're putting together the equivalent of the NAACP for mental health and addiction. There really is no case law in this space because it's brand new, but we're trying to develop some expertise. We want to put together toolkits for the attorneys generals in all 50 states to know when to take one of their insurers that practices within their state to court. We know we can get judgments that are really big in terms of the punitive damages that would move insurance company practices in a way that if an individual were to appeal a denial, they wouldn't, because basically all they would get is their care uh, paid back, and at some most cases that'd be too late. So it doesn't really add a financial imperative for insurance companies to follow the law. You know, we're also informing insurance commissioners. And the law is the law that you passed. The law says, you know, inpatient, in-network, outpatient, in-network, inpatient, out-of-network, outpatient, out-of-network, pharmacy, ER. If you provide it for cancer, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, then you got to provide it for any like uh, brain illness. And you have to provide it the same level of severity of care that you would for any other level of severity for care and any other physical or surgical issue. It's very, very specific. But historically, insurance companies have been got, got away with murder, basically, by denying care because they know the people are too ill to, to appeal or they're too bedraggled with their family to ever worry about trying to make an appeal or try to figure out how to make an appeal. So we really need to shake up the system. And unfortunately, politically, as you know, there's not a whole lot of bandwidth in terms of the advocacy world. And um, they barely can keep the lights on at some of these organizations. So there really isn't the pressure for us to move forward the way we need to. Uh, Hopefully with the um, Affordable Care Act, uh, we're going to be able to change the financial dynamics of this such that it'll become a financial imperative for insurance companies to treat underlying depression. Should the Affordable Care Act uh, emphasizes preventive care, preventative care, so um, uh, you would think this is, a, this is a prime area where you can really save so much on the back end by investing in the front end. You know, insurance companies have ratcheted down so much on all the physical health spends and managed care. Behavioral health is the secret sauce to the savings for the Affordable Care Act because it's the new tool in their toolkit they've never used before. And it's where the biggest savings. We know underlying depression, anxiety, ratchets up the cost in physical health over four times. That's a lot of money. You take the high utilizers in healthcare, guaranteed they have underlying depression, anxiety. It comes with having one of these tragic 
physical conditions. If they're chronic illnesses, even greater likelihood they have you know, depression, anxiety. And if you don't treat those depressions and anxieties, then you know the, the other costs are, are really skyrocket. So the, the numbers crunchers have gotten to this, and they're beginning to say, listen, this makes financial sense. And as you and I know, if you can get insurers to see their own financial interest in doing what we always wanted them to do from the humanistic point of view, then so be it. I'll take whatever I can get in terms of the reasons they're doing this. Mm-hmm. Are there uh, people, uh, public officials out there who are uh, who are pushing the envelope on this as, as you did when you were in Congress? Are there people who you consider uh, cutting-edge leaders uh, in public life on this issue? Um, well, I, I, don't blame me for mentioning a Rhode Islander, uh, just because I'm from Rhode Island. But Sheldon Whitehouse is the principal sponsor of the Comprehensive Addiction Recovery Act, which re- really sets the model for addiction and recovery. So the best treatment for a chronic illness is obviously chronic care management. Recovery is the, is the shorthand for it if you have an addiction. And yet we don't do anything to support recovery. What Sheldon's done uh, is really put that bill together. On the AG's part, um, Schneiderman from New York has been an all-star. Um, he just he's taken these insurance companies in New York. There isn't practically a, an insurance company that we know of by name that he hasn't sued and gotten a judgment from under the parity law. And what's to think that the only people being discriminated by insurance companies are only in New York? They're mm-hmm. clearly in all the other 49 states, but has it changed have... insurance company behavior? Um, well, of course, in New York it has. Again, we're waiting for the president's task force on parity, which is set to, to issue their report in October. Um, that will help us address the more insidious medical management discrimination that occurs. Um, today, we got rid of, thanks to the parity law, higher premiums, higher copays, higher deductibles, lower lifetime caps, and thanks to the president's Affordable Care Act, the pre-existing condition. We got rid of all that. But now, insurance companies are practicing discrimination in fail-first models or pre-authorization for this and that. All of these are stall tactics to deny care. That's what we need to get a better handle on. And the way the parity law is written. There must be analogous treatment for brain health as there would be for any other physical or surgical, which means it presumes you need to make a comparison in order for it to be parity. So we need to have disclosure by insurance companies as to how they do utilization management. They've never opened up their books. And this is it, David. We could save ourselves years of litigation if we just get disclosure from insurance companies and how they do utilization management. That is the biggest ball game for us. Patrick, there was just a, a new study out that uh, spoke to this pretty alarming increase in suicide. That's right. And um, one uh, cohort that was impacted were adolescent girls. Others were middle, middle-aged men. Yes. Uh, you, the middle-aged men, I I presume, was associated with uh, changes in our economy and some of the economic pressures that they're feeling. Perhaps uh, the sense of loss after not just the paycheck, but the dignity that comes with a job. Uh, but the 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 adolescent girls—that was a disturbing 
development. Uh, do you have any sense of why that is? You've got small kids. Yes. Yeah. No. I. I have. I'm terrified about cyberbullying. I'm terrified about the kind of antisocial world that we're growing up with, all the iPads, iPhones, and technology. I don't think we have a full um, reach on how much this is going to impact our... our, I I think you're right. I I say this all the time. I think the technology is outstripping our ability to understand its impact. That's right. And you see it in the way... um, you know, the addiction to I think people are literally addicted to their devices. They I think are. I'm literally addicted yeah, to my device and it's changed the way I attend and Yes. Uh well, so it's you can physical. imagine it's, young- it's neurobiological. We can see dopamine. I mean it, it, there there is correlations in the way the brain reacts to the way we use technology. But we're grown men and but kids their brains are developing. That's right. So um but you know, we're seeing greater incidents overall of depression, anxiety, eating disorders, addictions of all kinds. This is a public health challenge. We really need to be on this. And look at the attention that Zika virus gets. I think it's appropriate. But 41,000 Americans last year successfully took their lives. Twice as many... Uh, people then uh, were killed and as a result of murder. Uh, overdose rates surpass car accidents. I mean, we're, we're in a crisis. And when you see the overall life expectancy of, of demographic groups in our country, like you mentioned, actually go down at a time when medical innovation and discovery is leading to longer life expectancies for everybody as a population, it's startling to think that we're actually seeing a flat line or a dip in life expectancy simply because of suicide and overdose. That should be a wake-up call to us. I know that you said before that you you you've uh, that you're focusing on uh, legal ramifications, enforcing the Parity Act, um, and not so much on the issue of stigma and public relations. But it strikes me, as I mentioned in relation to my father, that. Unless someone is willing to uh, is uh, is willing to take advantage of help uh, and see it as uh, uh, as a uh, not not a stigma yes. stigmatizing development that there are a lot of folks who may be living with the pain yes. and doing what you did, which That's is right. self medicating rather than uh, seeking help. So doesn't the the sort of education piece doesn't the the, the anti-stigmatism piece, uh, isn't that important to deal with this problem? There's, there's no question. It's critical. You know, as a former politician, policymaker, I'm really conscious of, you know, bandwidth and where I can focus my mm-hmm. energy that can get us the biggest results. Because, you know, I want to boil the ocean. I want to go after stigma. I want to go after provider accountability. We don't hold providers to any outcomes-based metrics whatsoever. And all the biggest trade groups who are in the practice of mental health have never put anything forward. I mean, it's shocking in this day and age that we're just beginning to say we ought to require outcomes-based metrics for the delivery of mental health services in much the way we expect medicine to produce certain definable and measurable outcomes. It's one of the reasons why no one believes that mental health can make a difference, 
because they've never known that it can make a difference. If we can show people getting better through a complement of both spiritual and medical and mental health treatments, people can have more confidence this ought to be treated effectively because they know it can effectively result in better health. Today, most of our anecdotal knowledge is that, well, this doesn't really make a difference and, you know, so-and-so and so-and-so isn't going to get better. If we can show population-based statistics that, no, we can really reduce the total number of suicides. When 90% of suicides have an underlying mental health condition, where most of those mental health conditions are undiagnosed and untreated, well, guess what? If you just began to diagnose and treat, you could, by deduction, reduce the total number of people who successfully complete suicide. I, I mean, and when you look at how we could employ technology to help with this challenge... I mean, it's remarkable uh, what, what technology can bring us. So, in other words, I have a lot of confidence that we could really change the, this macro tragic um, epidemic of overdoses and suicides, but we need the political will to do it. And part of what will create that political will is for people to see that it is possible and and that means PR, but it also means just showing some results. So people say, oh, well, it's worth you going to get that treatment because unlike Harry who kept cycling in and out over Patrick, that rehab had never got better, we know you can get better, not just by going to rehab, but by having intensive outpatient and having chronic care management through, you know, even your primary care doc, using telepsychiatry, using your iPhone to meet with your psychiatrist, your peer support specialist. I mean, we have to show people the world we're trying to build for them so they say, oh, my God, I want that. Patrick, when uh, a few years ago you very publicly uh, tried to counsel uh, Jesse Jackson Jr., who was going through difficulties, uh, and uh, you know, since that time he spent some time in prison um, and uh, publicly has discussed and his family's discussed the fact that he was dealing with bipolar dis disorder. Uh, have you kept in touch with him? Um, I have. Uh, I hate to say not as much as I should, but I, I do periodically. We, we text each other. We'll call each other. Um, and, uh, yeah, he's uh, suffered a lot. And, uh, you know, we serve what right next to one another. And he was such a champion for, you know, issues of uh, injustice to the minority community and fighting for all of those things. And I was always questioning on the mental health. And here we are. We are both suffering. It just, I think, also proves the point that these aren't issues that are those people. I mean, amongst us, people can be very high-functioning and still be suffering a great deal. Um, so, Do you guys, did you guys... I mean, uh, I'm curious as to whether you felt a special kinship because you both were the sons of these very, very powerful, uh, luminescent characters in American life and American politics. Did you guys ever discuss that and the pressures associated with that? Well, I write in my book a little vignette about uh, how when I was with him at Mayo and he was asking me to kind of speak on his behalf to describe... Um, his suffering uh, from depression um, to kind of explain it for him because he hadn't found the words yet. 
uh, in his own nomenclature to do it. Um, he said, do you mind speaking to my dad? So I said, sure. And he, you know, his push speed dial and then there's the reverend. And, uh, I said, uh, you know, Jesse and I have been talking about, you know, what it's like, and I don't know who's got a bigger bird to carry, you know, him or I, you know, and, and of course the reverend got a big chuckle out of it. And he said, the cross is a lot easier to bear when you're not bearing it alone. I had everything I could do to stop from saying amen. <laughs> so, but, you know, yeah, there, there was a certain um, experience that both of us shared in common from, from that coming from families like we came from. I think that gave us a connection. Certainly what we had both been through gave us a connection and that we served together in Congress gave us a connection. Um, I know he'll be a friend for life as much as we, no matter what the frequency of our, our talking, we'll sometimes talk more than others. But um, yeah, and I'm very grateful for that. And I, I really believe he'll, he'll uh, have a, a long ways to go in terms of making great contributions the way he wants to, to, uh, to our country and to so living. So you think a, he'll, he'll come back in some form or fashion? Yeah, it's so much in his his uh, DNA. Like, I was really kind of introverted, and as we talked about earlier, yeah. it was a big leap for me to get into this business. Yeah. For Jesse, he's kind of got a different temperament and disposition that lends itself more to this type of advocacy. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. The, uh, the opioid uh, epidemic, uh, how... Uh, I, I'm wondering how concerned you are about it, and... Um, was that if that were the dominant um, sort of uh, drug of choice in your day, would that have been a risk to you? Well, it ended up being my drug of choice. Oxycontin was what I used for years. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm an addict, so it doesn't matter what it is. Um, I, I used benzodiazepines and you know, alcohol and stimulants, Adderall, cocaine, you name it. I mean, the only thing that kept me... While you were out, while you were on the house floor, while you were doing your work, while you were... Yeah, I mean, um, you know, I would use stimulants to get me going, and then I'd use, you know, benzodiazepines to try to even me off. I'd use depressants like alcohol, you know, and um, opiates to help calm me down at the end of the day. I mean, it was really just a, a way of managing my mood. I, I have to ask, where did you get all of these drugs? Not a problem at all. Um, I had doctors both at home in my district and in Washington, D.C. Um, and I had doctors I ran into all the time in the course of my travels. I'd always be able to say, I don't have anyone to write for me. I'm on the road, which I was on the road all the time. People would write for me. They wouldn't question I'm a congressman, you know, of course. What do you need me to do? Oh, could you call something in here? Sure. And then, of course, I had this back surgery. You know, it's like 14-inch scar in the middle of my back. They didn't question it. Um, and I guess, uh, and this was before the prescription drug monitoring program. You know, I, I was snuck in under the, the, the line there in terms of by the time that kicked in, I was already on my way out the door in terms of into recovery. Um, but I was able to, like anyone prior to that, kind of shop 
the different pharmacies and the different doctors that I got to write for me um, with impunity, basically. I had some physicians that were, yes, very um, irresponsible in how much they wrote for me. Um, but they kind of didn't want to question me. Mm-hmm. And that's the benefit what of it. What about your colleagues? Did, did your colleagues talk to you? I mean, they must have noticed your behavior. Oh, yeah. No, uh, I mean, I was saved by many of my colleagues, some of whom were like absolute uh, saviors in, in getting me off the House floor uh, when I was about to really do something uh, to embarrass myself. Uh, you know, and I was fortunate I had a, the A staff, you know, just brilliant, who, who managed to keep everything, all the machine going while I was at half steam. Um, so the combination of it meant that I could plug along um, and um, not pay the full consequences. Although, you know, I was, I, when I write my book, I go through the, all the incidences that were big red flags. You know, I was arrested in the airport in LAX. I was arrested by the Coast Guard. And of course I was arrested. Driving in the... Yeah. And I was... Uh, the I, accident in 2006. The accident in 2006, I was arrested by uh, Capitol Police. So, I mean, I had plenty of, you know, uh, signs that's, that I needed help. But then of course, because you don't talk about these things, oh, he's looking better now forgetting the fact this is a chronic illness. Oh, he already went to rehab. Yeah, like a half a dozen times before, but that doesn't do it if you have a chronic illness. In other words, I was able to write my own personal narrative, but also highlight what's wrong with our healthcare system, which is that we look at this as a series of acute episodic uh, situations as opposed to something that needs to be treated on a chronic disease basis. So tell me about your life now. So my life now is, uh, you know, I get up every morning and go to a 12-step meeting. Um, I have uh, a sponsor in 12-step recovery I talk to frequently. I have family who are in 12-step recovery who provide a little bit more of the kind of intimate feedback I need for for what I uh, benefit from in terms of their input to the road that I'm traveling and the road they traveled and how it's very instructive to me. I have an incredible wife who I, I can really share everything with and is uh, very uh, emotionally high IQ in terms of EQ, emotional um, sensitivity and, and grounding. Um, I have beautiful children that just um, totally take... Three? Four. Four now. Yeah. Take me out of myself. Totally take me out. And, and that's the biggest challenge if you're an addict. You're totally self-absorbed, self-centered. You know, there's nothing like having kids around to just totally extinguish Do you have that. moments of fear? Do you fear oh, about yeah. relapse? Do you fear about, do you, do, you, do you deal with moments of depression yet? Oh, uh, I do. But I'm able to um, not feel like they... Uh, they're uncontrollable. Like I, I have this cogn- cognitive behavioral therapy is the most validated uh, s- uh, psychotherapy there is. And uh, I only have been getting it for the last couple of years. So I'm able to kind of think through my feeling. I'm able to do my checklist. How's life? 
oh, oh, it's good. I may not feel that way, but I can intellectualize how good my life is, even if I don't feel that way. And it is a good barometer, but that's a tool. Like that's an exercise, like working out in the gym that I never would have had if someone not presented it to me, right? Mm -hmm. So I have, you know, these kind of talk to a sponsor, talk to a friend or family member. So these are tools that may seem obvious to the average person, but I never seemed to get the guidebook when they were handing them out to how to live life. Well, listen, I, uh, I really am proud of you, and I admire you for turning your travails into uh, these efforts to help so many other people. And uh, uh, I am confident that lives will be saved because of what you're doing, and uh, we all should be very grateful it, to it you. It means a lot to me, David, to have you say that. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.